Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Before we start, I want to say it's good to be back. We took a few weeks off just to recharge the batteries, refresh. Now we're back. We run into Christmas and the new year, which will take into account our, our, our actual birthday on the show, our first birthday on the show. Um, please make sure you follow the show on the socials, which is at Health Tech Hour, and also follow the, the station at UK Health Radio. We have a hugely exciting schedule in the run up to Christmas. Um, so make sure you follow to stay on top of everything that's coming up. So this week, we have one of the new pioneers in digital health on the show, Daph Lochran, who is the CEO and founder of Concentric Health. Now, Concentric Health are, like my company, PopDoc, an alumni of the NHS Digital Accelerator. Um, Huge shout out to the guys on the Digital Accelerator. It's their fifth birthday this year. Five years of being the leading route into the NHS for digital innovators and digital health companies. So, yeah, well done to Jenny, Ruth and the whole team over there. Concentric Health are another example um, of why I love doing the show. It's a really great, elegant solution to an endemic problem across healthcare systems, not just in the UK, but but across the world, that is critically important, but on the face of it, probably or possibly might get overlooked by patients as to how much the difference or how important it is to get this particular thing right and the risks of getting it wrong. So concentric health are market leaders in what they call digital consent. So no more paper consent forms. Concentric is being used across the NHS, across a number of trusts. and is playing a key role in clearing the huge surgical backlog that we all know is there, thanks to COVID. Well, it was there before COVID, but COVID made it a lot worse. Um, David himself is surgically trained, has worked in digital health across a number of in a number of ways across the last six years, um, and is a hugely mission-driven founder. And that is what we like to have on the show. So, Daph, how are you? Very well. Thank you so much. For, for, thanks for such a lovely intro. Thanks. Well, you know, we try, we try, people are going to take their time to come on the show, we try and, you know, and every word I said was true, so all good. What's currently, um, I like to ask everyone, what's the current mood in the camp like at Concentric? Because, you know, if, if it's anything like at our place, the last 12 to 18 months has just been non, non-stop, but, but what's the mood in the camp like at Concentric? Yeah, so I think we'll, we'll kind of touch a bit, a bit um, in a moment in terms of all the stuff that's happening around elective care, but... Yeah, that's definitely um, a few funding rounds have come out recently from, you know, from NHSX and stuff. So quite a few big announcements having just been made and some more uh, about to come out. So I think we're gearing gearing up for a busy winter. Yeah, I think everyone's gearing up for a busy winter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. So as regular listeners know, and thank you very much to all the regular listeners to the show. Thank you very much for getting in touch and telling us what you love, what you don't like, that's all very well taken. Um, the show is in three parts. So the first part is, is an origins part around how DAF came to be doing all the ph- phenomenal world-changing stuff that, that he and Concentric are doing. The, the middle bit's all around what Concentric are doing right now, and then the final bit, if we get to it, is more around the future. So um, let's, let's kick off. So we've had a number of clinicians turned CEO founders on the show. Um, I think it gives a really unique insight, actually, um, particularly within digital health, if you're running a digital health business about about moving from a, a surgical or clinical role or pathway into starting your own company um what what do you think yeah I absolutely echo that so you know my story was that i started playing around in this kind of consent and shared decision making space so shared decision making being the kind of concept of patient and clinician together being able to make the best decisions so you know clinician as the expert in the medicine and the patient being the expert in in themselves and you know what matters to them and and their preferences and priorities but so I kind of started playing around with with some stuff way back in 2012 2013 as a you know as a, as a baby junior doctor um and I essentially went to a to a hospital um where first day I was told right you know you're the new f2 the second year doctor is that uh, your job on this a code is an F2. That's the official code. Yeah. So, okay. so yeah, second, second year doctor. Um, and I was told on the first day, right, one of your jobs on this um, on this firm, as it were, is to, to consent all the patients. So make sure they've all signed their piece of paper before we operate. Um, and I kind of, yeah, well, well, great. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't really know much about orthopedics, but I'll, uh, I'll give that a go. And, uh, <laughs> you know, 
very, very quickly felt very uncomfortable having these conversations about, you know, operations that I, you know, maybe had vaguely heard of. Okay. But you know, my job as a as a junior doctor was to was to get a signature on a consent form. So, um, basically, you know, our, my my kind of journey into this was was trying to solve that little bit of problem for my own sake, from a, as a clinician. Mm. Um, so I started building some resources of of information that I'd use, and you know, other junior, junior doctors around me would be like, hey, before you go and have that conversation with the patient, Dad, what are you doing on your phone, like? you know, we don't usually have our phones out on the ward. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I've got this, you know, thing of information that I kind of remind myself and use. And, and then I can try and have a valuable conversation with the patient. And, um, and that, you know, seemed to kind of strike a chord with people. Um, and some people started using it. And suddenly it was kind of, you know, in, in, in the, the lightest touch inverted commas ever, a kind of startup, because <laughs> at that point in time, you know, when you talk about, you know, back in 2013, 2014, that kind of clinical entrepreneur thing was so, so small. It was so, so early that basically if anyone was doing anything, um, you know, everyone, everyone knew, knew what you were doing. And so, you know, I, I had the, you know, that first few experiences of, you know, going and pitching an idea and, you know, the stuff that you just, you know, don't do in, in, you know, med school and clinical training and, and this kind of stuff. And, and then this first glimpse of you know an opportunity to be creative and think about problems and and you know try and solve them you know off your own bat and so I this was kind of you know really early little glimpses of that kind of stuff but it was enough that in 2015 I decided well I'm just curious about some of the stuff off the kind of usual training treadmills if you think about how you know surgeons are trained or you know other medical specialties as well you go through med school and then you know you're into you know five to ten years of training before you get to that kind of consultant grade and that's often described as a kind of training treadmill it's very very you know prescribed there's as you say there's you know a code for each year and there's yeah. exactly specific things you have to do um in each year and it's pretty difficult to kind of feel creative in in <laughs> that kind of um, thing. So I was like, well, I'll explore something. Um, well, did, did um did did when you when you when you came up with this or when you were doing this, like, um, did people think you were kind of crazy? Were they like, what? Why don't you just follow the normal protocol? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Or so were they kind of like open to it and being like, oh yeah. wow, that's cool. I wish I thought of that. So I think when when there was kind of you know other junior doctors would see you know me for example using that kind of really early aid memoir uh, app I think that was kind of you know people were curious and interested but then so 2015-2016 I made the decision to kind of step out of you know usual surgical training and I, I'd been the kind of guy who'd done his surgical exams like stupidly early and was like you know going to be a consultant as you know fast as, track you were as, fast as, track. As, as absolutely as quickly as I could be and stuff and so you know and, and then suddenly I was saying well I want to step off this treadmill and, and do something different and I had some you know really tough conversations at that point with you know people who were my kind of education supervisors or you know people who were meant to be kind of mentoring me along that journey and and absolutely you know there's no you know more than once there was the you know you're throwing it up you're throwing it all away type of comments made and you know well you won't be able to come back and all this kind of stuff and um so that was that was definitely pretty challenging um well let's let's just take it back a step um so at what point went you know in your life because i know that obviously like you said you you went you decided to go down a, a medical route was that yeah. something that you decided pretty early on because it, it, it or, or was that something you fell into or like how wh- when did you realize that healthcare in some way shape or form was was your path yeah um i think the last time i was asked that was a um, med school interview well, I, 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 <laughs> nothing if not up to date nothing if not uh, um, on the pulse here on the health yeah so so i um so i used to play um decent level tennis um so i played you know some you know national and and some european tour kind of junior tennis stuff unfortunately you, you can't quite tell on the radio how tall i am but i'm i'm you know five ten, but not six foot two okay. and as a as a 14 15 year old i was um, I was significantly shorter than that, and so I, okay. um, so 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 really, it was. Uh, um, I suppose I had, in those kind of early teenage years, thought I would do kind of sports stuff, and um, and then 
it I think it was a bit of a kind of transition from you know I I was thinking well if I'm not going to be a professional sports sports person then you know do I do something in terms of you know sports nutrition or sport and and I kind of ended up falling into that that kind of you know health stuff and um I went to a school where quite a few people um uh, state school back in West Wales but one that has kind of traditionally churned out quite a few medics. Um, okay. you know, there's, a, there's a kind of busload of us who go to Cardiff Uni from uh, from West Wales, <laughs> from the school, as it were. It's like um, a very well-trod pathway, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. that was kind of, um, I think, you know, I mean, there, there, there are other stories you give in terms of, you know, being around when, you, when your grandmother fell down the stairs when you're yeah. six and stuff. But I, I think that's probably a more, a more truthful story of uh, falling then, into the path. And how did you... Um, because you ended up in urology, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And what, how did you end up, because that's not necessarily, you know, a, a, an obvious place to, to end up. Was it a selection or is it, was there a motivation for, for that? Yeah, so I think um, probably a very shared story with so many clinicians where, you know, I, so my first surgical job as a, as a junior doctor was a, I was, um, so my first job in hospital um, as a junior doctor was a surgical job and it happened to be a, a really great one and you know had one particular registrar who was just so supportive and was just incredible and so yeah, you know that started the path and I think so many clinicians you know might have some ideas about what they want to do in med school but really it's that first really good job really? that he says actually that's what I'm going to do. Oh that's cool I, I do not I've never actually known that I didn't know that that was one of that was what happened that's interesting yeah first first great first great mentor is is I think the driving factor to what most people do in it okay and when you decided to take I get how would you refer to it more of an executive pathway as opposed to a clinical pathway when you moved out of traditional clinical work and how would you describe how would you describe that change yeah so I mean yeah so I think think it was more mission creep for me really so I did I kind of, you know, so I was, I was in that state where I knew that I wanted to explore something slightly different to that pathway. Um, there was a, there was an opportunity to kind of do 12 months as a kind of a clinical leadership year, which is, which is something that is, you know, available within, you know, training pathways. I was, um, again, kind of super lucky to be given lots and lots of flexibility in that year to say, you know, I had a um, coffee with uh, education supervisor John Bolton on that kind of first day in that in that fellowship, where he, you know, basically said, you know, we ha- we kind of had a project teed up for your year, but I'm kind of interested in where your brain takes some flexibility and you know space wow. this kind of thing. And so, um, I had a really, you know, just a year where I explored loads of stuff. I kind of ended up doing things in digital health, you know sat in a few startups you know since time in London didn't you know seeing how startups worked seeing how different you know quality improvement setups worked in different places mm-hmm. um, and off the back of that um got hired by Babylon Health who um I'm sure a number of listeners will will know of Babylon yeah, so um, kind of a big kind of a big digital health company yeah so I, so I, so I went to Babylon you know reasonably early in Babylon's journey it was you know uh, 80 people or so um, was there for 18 months, two years. And by the time I left, it was, you know, 800 people. So, wow, that's crazy. So, the, you know, saw an amazing, you know, journey for that company. And, and clearly Babylon is, is, you know, controversial, but it's also, you know, pushed boundaries in so many ways. But just seeing a, a company go from, you know, a startup to, you know, an organization that had to work work out so many things um, was, you know, fascinating to see and, and I think put us it put me in you know a position where when an opportunity came via some Innovate UK so kind of UK go funding in 2018-2019 to go and take what had been this kind of you know passion project side project as I said from you know 2013-2014 around consent and shared decision making and kind of make it a real a real thing in a business you know I think those those two years of Babylon made that so much more possible to 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 execute that properly than than if i just you know suddenly stepped out of medicine to 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 do that uk health radio the station that makes you feel good 
How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. The station that makes you feel good. Well, I want to come back a little bit to like, because you you obviously now are a startup, well, you know, are founder of a startup. So I want to kind of come back around to like some of the learnings and some of the impressions that you've got, the differences and some of the things that you've learned having done that journey. Because like I said, I think that journey from clinician to, to, to founder of a startup is hugely, hugely valuable. Um, to, to, to kind of explore but just for our listeners I think what would be really helpful and also for me but what are the basic challenges that exist around um, patient consent shared consent just just give us the you know give us the landscape about what, what the what the issues are because I'm sure that most what well, a large number of people listening would have been in a hospital and will have had to have signed a form and may have thought about it may have not thought about it you know but what, just just give us the spread you know yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the key challenges here is that, you know, whereas in most, you know, walks of life by now, you know, we've been become kind of more consumer driven. We're kind of, you know, we're aware of the decisions that we make in, in lots of different spaces in our lives. But healthcare in many ways has been the kind of last bastion of, of autonomy of decisions. It's, you know, you go into hospital and, and it feels like it's really complicated and difficult to engage with and, and lots of the systems that don't particularly make it that easy for you to engage with. And so, so many of us kind of take off our own hats and, and say, okay, you know, I, I don't understand this stuff. So doc, you know, w- what should I do? And, and it's been this very, you know, paternalistic, you know, paternalistic meaning, you know, um, you know, medic as in making the decision for the patient rather than the other way around um and and we know there's you know huge challenges in that in terms of that there's lots of you know some of the numbers from places like you know think tanks like the king's fund mean that probably about 20 percent of operations are happening when actually if the patient was you know really kind of understood the different options and how th- different things would impact them in the you know, short, medium, long term. They would make, make different decisions, often, you know, more conservative decisions. There's some really kind of stark examples of that. So, you know, some pathways where it, depending on who you see first, you know, there's some trusts where if you've got certain musculoskeletal pain, you go to a physio first, or if you go to a surgeon first, actually the outcomes in terms of what treatment that person really? has is, is massively different depending on, on the same so for in theory the same set of symptoms yeah, yeah. The same yeah, exactly. and yeah. so going back to that 20 percent figure so what you just 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 to understand um because we like we like metrics on the show what you what you said was that there's some there's some evidence and some 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 papers some 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 documentary evidence that suggests or, or shows that 20 percent of of operations may not necessarily have happened if the person had been given more information around the consent or otherwise of that particular pathway. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And, and have that, so that's absolutely right. And, and for some procedures, it's, it's much higher than that. Um, really? And, wow. Yeah. So this is um, good example. It's a good example kind of at the extreme of that was, is that in um, kind of prostate operations for, for older guys. So um clinician so some really interesting data in terms of um, how clinicians kind of perceive things that are important to men in their 60s 70s and 80s so um traditionally if you were having prostate problems in your 60s and um, a clinician a clinician would have a de- detailed conversation with you around you know the risk of erectile dysfunction if you have you know an operation in your prostate and all this kind of stuff yeah this kind of um 
kind of silent assumption that you probably didn't really need to have that conversation with someone in their maybe late 70s and early 80s but actually okay. if you ask patients they're like do you know what my sex life is still really important to me um and so, oh, so so it was sort of like a given that like 70 or 80 year olds wouldn't really worry about erectile dysfunction yeah and therefore would be more inclined that it's almost like a default so is it is it a bit like the default changed the, 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 the doctors or the clinicians change the default based on age group without consulting the people in the age group. Yeah. And sometimes that's to do with age group. Sometimes that's to do with different characteristics, but basically that, you know, I think we have seen time and time again in the evidence that, you know, clinicians and I'm a clinician myself and, you know, there's lots of things that clinicians do very well, but one of the things that clinicians try, you know, struggle with, and it's, it's of no surprise given that, you know, someone for, maybe five minutes before you know mm-hmm. starting to make these decisions for them is that there is a discord between what a clinician thinks is important to a patient compared to what that patient prioritizes for themselves and, and we see that time and time again and you know sometimes that's because of assumptions about age sometimes that's assumptions about different characteristics but you know what that what we've seen you know in the evidence over the last you know 20 20 years or so is that if you can bring those two parties together, this kind of concept of shared decision-making to say, clinician, you understand the medicine, you understand the options, you understand, you know, the, the differences, but you need that patient to give it that context for that patient. So what are the, what are the important things to that patient? What are the things that, you know, were in them? What are the, what are their like priorities for what, you know, they need to be doing in yep. 30, day, 30 days, five years, 10 years, whatever that is. Um, and if you can bring those two together, so thinking of the clinician as a guide rather than mm-hmm. a decision maker, so it's, you know, some people call this supported decision making rather than shared decision making, then actually that decision is, is significantly better. And yes, so, sometimes that's more conservative, but sometimes it goes the other way as well. It's, you know, okay. that you have an operation, whereas otherwise the clinician might think so, you didn't need it. And do you think, and this might be wrong, so feel free to tell me that I'm completely bonkers. But um, is it was there kind of a fear before you started concentric, the 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 desire or or sort of I guess inclination of of clinicians to sort of force is too hard, but more proactively guide or sort of take decision making power away from patients was that was that sort of um, was that being done like proactively or was it more subconsciously and was it was it around well, we just know better than they do, ergo, you know, one plus one equals two. Or was it like a fear of, of the patient making the wrong decision? You know, so like in an instance where a patient, where, where really they, the, you know, nine out of 10 patients should choose option A, you know, is there a fear that like by giving them too many options, they might just choose like clinically the wrong option? Or is there never a clinically wrong option? What do you, I don't know. Yeah, so, so it's, def- it's definitely multifactorial, right? But, but I think you, you touch on some important things there in terms of, you know, shared risk, you know, the, the feeling of doing something. You know, I think, you know, oncology and chemotherapy treatment and this kind of stuff is a good example where there is a strong, you know, desire or feel to do something, to offer something if you can. Um, okay. So sometimes to make the decision not to do something, you know, requires some of that kind of shared risk and, you know, shared acceptance yeah. of, of that kind of decision between clinician and patient. Um, and then, you know, I think in terms of, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's challenges around the system. So, you know, in, in terms of having these, like, you know, great shared conversations with patients, I think, you know, we all know that, and, you know, that's, that makes clear sense. Like it doesn't need anyone to tell you that you should have be, be having great conversations with patients about, you know, what matters to them. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> i'm but, not sure anyone's going to do the old counter argument to that right exactly but but you know there are, there are definitely challenges in the system that make that you know hard or, or or easy to kind of drop um you know in the pressures or if you think about you know one of the difficulties in terms of the consent process you know historically has been that so many of these conversations have happened you know, on the day of surgery, patients, right. patients already, you know, in their gown, got their bottom out as these horrendous surgical gowns are, you know, they're, they're, they're about to be wheeled into theatre. They've got their surgical, you know, theatre block, they, you know, they're, they're teed in for that 90 minutes in, in surgery, as it were. Mm. 
and a clinician is having this really rushed conversation as i said you know sometimes that's that's a consultant but sometimes it's someone much more junior and and potentially more junior than they should be having that conversation as, as in your example as right in my example um where you know you you have a surgical operating list starting at 8 a.m um you've rocked up to to the hospital at half seven and um, conscientiously coming in half an hour early but you've got to cram in you know all the conversations for your list that day which might be you know seven or eight patients and um, and you know there's an expectation for you to be in theater you know ready for the you know briefing conversation in theater at eight and right. so it becomes yeah. it becomes yeah. transactional right so the transaction yeah. Yeah. you need is a signature on a consent form you know that what you should be doing is having a really good valuable conversation but somewhere in, in that you know a pull push there's there's you know you lose well, that ability on that is a very good way to segue into how concentric health solves the problem so talk to us about what concentric does and how it addresses these issues yeah, so concentric is a, is a is a digital consent and shared decision making application, um, which essentially tries to make it really easy to um, empower patients with you know personalized information, evidence based information, um, you, you know aid that understanding, and and we'll kind of touch upon where in the pathway that can happen and the, you know the opportunities for that, um, and and you know it, it, at the end of the day to support that shift towards informed shared decisions you know patients owning those decisions for themselves um and you know lots of this is about making that information really accessible um you know that it's not just you know a, a, a quick conversation with a clinician where you're you know trying to take it all in but the reality is that you know you you, you remember nothing more than you know a few percent of it um and that you can go back to it that it's personalized that, that you know and uh, and be able to you know engage with this information and make some decisions and uh, not just in those you know five minute consultation but in the 99.99% of the time that isn't that you know five minute consultation and yeah. and um, su- support that pathway UK Health Radio the station that makes you feel good Scalar light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe, from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com. Or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. I, look, I think it's a fantastic, a fantastic idea, a fantastic mission. So just, again, try and help people understand. So I think conceptually it makes total sense. But actually, like how, you know, what, what's the user journey like for a patient? And then yeah. I guess for more on the, the clinical side would be super interesting. So like you can start with the patient. Just just walk us through, you know, how 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 it completely revolutionizes the, the, the way a patient interacts with a potential operation and, 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 and yeah. that consent process. Yeah, so the first thing to say is, um, and I think one of the things that people sometimes misunderstand is that this, you know, concentric as a as a digital consent application isn't taking the clinician out of that consent process. So, mm-hmm. for example, you know, one of the things that a clinician has to do is is kind of prepare that information for the patient. So the start of any you know consent episode, as you want, if you want to call it that, is that a clinician prepares the information for that patient now clearly that's supported with you know evidence-based templates and the kind of information that we you know provide 
but a patient, but a clinician uses what they know about that patient or previous conversations to to tweak it, to personalize it, to kind of say, well, actually, in you, you're diabetic, and and this and that, and so you know your risk of a wound infection is higher, or, or you know that kind of stuff. And then at that point, that is shared with a patient in in one of a d- number of ways. So so we'll see some clinicians say, okay, you're coming in for a kind of consent conversation with me in clinic you know, on Thursday. So I'm going to send you some information out, you know, a couple of days before so that you can have a look at it, kind of understand it, think about your questions, make your you know, notes about it. And then, you know, the aim is then to, to say, let's have a conversation about this rather than, a, you know, me dictating a load of information to you. So, you know, if, if, that, con- if, if that consultation between clinician and patient can be a can be a dialogue about about what they've read or you know about that information so it can be a, a, a you know a question and answer you know yeah. posing you know thinking about things rather than just trying to take all of that information in that you're being presented then yeah. i think that's so much more valuable agree frankly it's you know it's so much better for the patient but it's also so much more interesting for the clinician to be having that you know having that proper you know, valuable conversation rather than just mm. you know, throwing stuff away. Okay. And, and so, and, and, and sometimes that's, you know, at the moment, obviously we've seen lots of that happening alongside virtual consultations, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, one of the challenges for us is that we still see lots of, you know, lots of this happening on the day of surgery. So there's a big, you know, attempt to move these conversations from. And is that, is that just, is that just because that's always the way it's been done? Is that, yeah, is that yeah. that's just that's just what happens yeah and it's often surprising to to even others in the hospital um you know the fact that the majority of these consent conversations have happened on the day of surgery now you know clearly there may have been some you know there'll be some discussion before there'll have been right? some discussion beforehand but it, it often won't have gone into the kind of proper detail there'll be a you know there'll be a decision to list for surgery but it's you know it's been done reasonably light touch at the end of a consultation as it were mm-hmm. rather than going into the detail about actually what this really might mean for you in in, in the short medium and long term and and really what the other kind of alternatives are and, and uh, you know checking yeah. this is definitely the right thing and so yeah so so that historically has been the kind of majority use case and um you know we've we've we're trying to move that earlier and and part and why, of that why, out, of, out of interest moving it earlier obviously i can understand from a patient's perspective yeah that makes total sense like i get yeah. it from like a patient experience which is obviously a key indicator yeah what, what other what, are there other reasons more i guess you know uh, from a from a sort of efficiency basis or a, an outcomes basis or you know what what other kind of i guess harder metrics are there because i'm sure there are reasons for moving that earlier yeah so um so some of that is to do with you know day of surgery cancellations and delays so there's a there's a decent percentage of of those cancellations and delays that happen because of consent stuff so that might be okay a patient is you know in in a small minority it might be that a patient has changed their mind based on some information it doesn't often happen because there's that kind of assumption that we're you're kind of yeah. too far down the road yeah you're um, at the top of the bungee jump with the thing on your legs exactly yeah yeah. The yeah yeah um and, but then you know often it's things like you know they've, they can't find a consent form or or just the, that logistic thing of you know, I've tried to have eight conversations in that tight 30 minutes and yeah. a couple of them have gone on. So we've, we've kind of delayed. And so right. some of that is in terms of, you know, removing those quite expensive delays. You know, theatre time is actually really expensive. There's, you know, 20 people involved. There's, you know, there's yeah. lots of bodies there. And, and, and that's, you know, especially where you're being, you know, paid for activity. Yeah. That's a really, you know, expensive delay. Um so yeah so so lots of that lots of it is 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 that obviously we've talked about the impact if you're if you're changing the kind of that that shared decision making element around removing some of those unnecessary operations people deciding to have you know more conservative treatments appropriately mm-hmm. um but but also as you say there's there are other often more difficult things to measure so if you have had good information good kind of things about what to expect how to prepare for surgery so there's mm-hmm. you know we're not kind of prehab platform but there is some that kind of prehabilitation information that sits within platform so sure. that kind of supports the stuff in terms of you know 
why you why stopping smoking during the build-up and those kind of stuff which have an impact on outcomes but also we see um, and and there's some work at the moment to kind of understand how much of an impact this is but anecdotally at least we have a number of people who say you know actually i would have gone to any because of you know this swelling or you know whatever it is but actually yeah. i kind of i was able to go back into my concentric information you know a week after the operation and got the context of actually oh, that's yeah, that that swelling is kind of kind of normal we expected to sit there for you know two weeks and then it okay. will start to settle so kind of don't worry about it and, and equally you know things that say actually you know if you have this and this after the operation actually we really want Probably. to take that seriously yeah. and yeah and so, so there is you know some of that stuff in terms of outcomes and 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 you know self-management where appropriate but also you know just in terms of the processes i had you know there's been a couple of examples um, and particularly as you know as a you know, surgical reg and so when a surgical reg comes to me and say and you know there's a couple of emails i've had in the last few months saying you know use consent for, for the first time today god it was so nice to um turn up to the surgical briefing with a coffee in hand instead of you know running there sweating having missed the first minute of it and okay. um, never happened before so, that, you know, and, 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 it, and that's and that's because everyone at that hospital i guess or the in that ward or wherever that was had already provided their consent through concentric prior to them getting to hospital yeah so they'd had that information before they'd been supported by conversations before you know that morning of surgery was was more just a you know anything changed everything happy you know any particular questions rather than this kind of race to tell you as yeah, much as I mean, I mean if you sat with a piece of paper and you were like when would we like to get patients when would we like to explain to patients yeah. about surgery when would we like to get them to agree to it would it, it would be not, with when they've got their bottom out probably not yeah, it would probably <laughs> not be like oh wait, you know 10 minutes to to them getting wheeled into the thing exactly. so um you you guys are on a tear i mean you guys are also concentric you're working with a number of trusts across the uk so yeah. what is it um I know it will be a range of different things, but if, if you've got, there's an element to concentric, which is around the digitization of the consent, which yeah. is a process efficiency thing, which makes total yeah. sense. But then you've got this sort of explanation, you know, bringing with someone facilitating the conversation as well as the sort of aftercare. So w- across the different people that you're working with, without wishing to give away any anything confidential, because that's not the point, but w- where are you seeing the most interest in those slightly different elements to the, to the platform? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so clearly you know covid and the the recovery and all the focus that is at the moment around you know digital first elective pathways to say you know we have a big challenge around backlog everyone is trying to you know see how they can get to you know 110% 120% you know business as usual activity wow and so those little you know if you can do if you can do 10 cataracts on a list instead of nine because of a little tweak here and a little tweak there, actually that, you know, that makes a, that makes a real difference. So, mm. so, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the most obvious example of, of, of a kind of driving force in terms of the market was the kind of NHSX funding that, you know, it's you know, a couple of tranches over the last few months, basically to say, you know, perioperative pathways, you know, it, there's funding available for things that enable that to be, you know, digital, digital first, you know, keeping patients out, uh, keeping patients out of hospital, only bring them into hospital when they're, you know, when it's absolutely required. Um, but importantly, not losing that, you know, quality of care. You know, mm. if you think about the consent process, God, it was so easy just to say, well, just send, send some information to a patient, get them to sign it. And, mm-hmm. you know, done. No, no need for yeah. that appointment at all. But actually that completely loses, you know, the value. The value here is in the conversation between clinician and patient, because as we said, these are, this is, these are complicated, you know, decisions and spheres. And, and it's, it's not about saying, well, we're just going to send you some information and, and get you to sign it. That's, yeah. that's, that completely misses the point, but it's saying, when can we use, you know, when can we use the clinician's brain yeah. to do what they what only they can do and um, when do we use facilities in hospital when you know only need to so so a patient is only you know in hospital or in outpatients well, when they absolutely need to be not for every thing that yeah. they just need to have a conversation you and i are not in the same room doing this because we don't need to be 
No, and I think that that's a great point. I, I mean, clinicians, well, clinicians should be doing what they're best at doing, you know, yeah. which I, I would argue is not running around like a, you know, um, headless chicken every morning trying to get people to sign bits of paper. Yeah. Um, and so I also think from a patient's perspective, you know, that well, and from a systems perspective, if, if you're saying, you know, on average, 20% of, of, of operations may not need to happen because if those people had had, um, if those patients had been educated, you know, discussed with in more detail about non-surgical options, you know, and, and you said for some conditions, it's significantly higher. Um, you know, that's a huge amount of cost in the system, huge amount of cost in the system, which if you can facilitate the removal of that digitally, which is, which, which it sounds like that's, that's what concentrical part of what you guys are, are, are delivering, that has the potential not, you know, you're not just talking about small tweaks to the, you know, consent process, you, that, that's, that's a huge um, impact on, 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 on the clinical care budget for, for, for any, for any trust, potentially. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. Would I be doing this as a kind of founder of consent if I, if I thought this was just about, you know, digitizing a form? No, you know, I'd be doing something different. Right. But for me, the opportunity here is that actually, you know, even as of, you know, when we went live with the kind of first iteration of concentric and at imperial in you know march 2020 that was that was solving you know a problem for both patients and clinicians but there's the opportunity in terms of so you know so we've touched about some of the stuff around shared decision making but also the you know the opportunity to make that so much more personalized to patients so you know there's all the stuff you know all the work around personalization of you know medicine and outcomes and all that kind of stuff and and for us there's a real opportunity to say you know, us and others will do lots of work in terms of collecting outcomes for patients and, mm-hmm. and kind of understanding that. But for us, then we can bring that right back into like a, an actual process between clinicians and patients, not for some, you know, organizational dashboard somewhere over there in terms of their outcomes, but saying, bring that right back to, to, to this conversation to say for, for you and for, for someone who has, you know, the things that mean, mean a lot to you, here's what here's what people say here's, here's what you know would would patients like you make the same decision again you know if you think about they're kind of you know reviewing something in amazon you can or you know TripAdvisor, you can say well you know what do what do couples say about this hotel you know and and so bringing some of that th- thought process into saying you know actually i can engage with this decision i you know i can see i can i can visualize it in my own you know it, for me in my own eyes as it were um and there's just so much value in that instead of saying, well, you know, everyone who's going to have a total hip replacement is going to have the same outcomes. It's just not true. Right? And, and you, you know, I think your, your point around in every other aspect of everyone's life, you've got, I mean, if not infinite choice, a huge amount of choice, you know, yeah. and that's what people are becoming accustomed to. So there isn't just one answer to anything. And, and I suspect what I know as a patient myself, and you know, I suspect many others feel the same way is that, if, if you interact with with a healthcare professional and they tell you that you should do this and they don't give you any other information or they don't it can be very frustrating and and, and you know concerning um, and so having a, anything that, that helps with that kind of education process because I think it, it speaks to trust as well because the, the more the more someone tells you that you know this is the way you have to do it yeah. I think the more pushback you're going to get and, and lose some trust in the system and people might just opt out altogether, which may create a much larger downstream problem, you yeah. know, if they don't have that thing treated right now. And, and you know, from, from that trust perspective, again, so much of this comes down, comes back down to conversation, um, you know, between two people. So if a clinician is in a, is in a, is in a you know, situation where they need to have a transactional thing signed because of different pressures or because of, you know, needing to just, tell a load of information in five minutes then you can see how that trust degrades between you know patients and that individual yeah. clinician, but also the wider profession right but yeah. if you go into that and say okay i've kind of been supported by some information before i'm in a non-time pressured environment and i know i can go back and kind of look at this information again in my in you know my in my own time and share that with others but for this 10 minutes i'm going to have a conversation with you as a person I think it's game changing. I mean, I really, really do. I, I, this is why, like I said, at the, the head of the show, you know, really elegant solution to a problem that many people may not even realize the, the scale of the problem, why it was so important. Yeah. Um, but that is massively important and also has a huge possibility to impact 
the entire healthcare system. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah good. Well, look, and how um, how close? I always like to ask this: How close is Concentric now to the original sort of aid memoir type app thing that you were like, you know, like hacking together back in the day? I mean, how how true is it to that sort of original vision? And, and what's the what what what? I guess if if what's different, if anything. Yes, yeah, so, this is it. So, so as as founders, so um, three founders of of Consultancy, myself, uh, Martin, who's my brother, um, and Ed Sinjin, who um, is a consultant on capacity pressage and down in um, now in Portsmouth, and uh, so it's one of those ones where I I had kind of started something back, you know, back in 2013, and Ed had actually started something slightly in parallel, uh, slightly more kind of, you know, more like a kind of you know an e form in its simple case, but. Um, that was being used by some clinicians in you know in London and and, and around, um, and then we kind of became aware of each other in you know, I don't know 2015 or so. Um, uh, Tony Young, um, so we were both clinical entrepreneurs on the, yeah. on the clinical entrepreneur program, um, and you know Tony said, "Well, guys, just." Stop being daft to you know come together yeah, on this and yeah ed and i spent you know eight months deciding whether we were friends or foes um, <laughs> until uh until saying well actually you know why don't we actually you know try and actually do something with this 50, rather than both 50, have tiny yeah. tiny little pet projects 50 percent of something bigger is, is much better than 100 yeah. percent of something very 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 small and so we kind of, you know, we, I think we, you know, brought some of that stuff together and I, you know, I've, I've probably, you know, pushed more of the, you know, that kind of shared decision making piece and Ed as, as, you know, as, you know, still a practicing clinician and, and is very, very close to that kind of process on the ground has, has, you know, made sure that we've kept good sight of the, you know, the logistics and the kind of reality of like, how does this really work? Like, how do we really tackle the kind of complex world of, 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 of medicine and, and the system to make, something that isn't just you know looks nice in a demo but frankly you know just doesn't work in the real world and yeah and, it's just not i think we've kind of you know brought, yeah brought those two things together i mean in reality and it's one of the things that we kind of you know every quarter we kind of think well is it the thing that we're going to do now actually that aid memoir you know isn't a, isn't a live product it's not one that's currently um you right. know, someone could uh could use but it probably will be at some point. Um, oh, good, cool. But, uh, yeah, so. that's good to good to know. Um, so, what um, what's next for you guys? What's up in the next 12, 18 months? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, so the next eighteen months for us is, you know, getting from, you know, so we're still really early in this journey, right? So we we've we launched with a first kind of product in into clinical practice, and you know, those who are kind of accustomed to business speak you know that's a kind of mvp a minimum viable product but healthcare mvps are especially if it's something that's used in a hospital is is slightly different to the kind of consumer yeah. mvp there's there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of committees and things you need to get through to get to get to that kind of you know day one mvp um but you know over the last 18 months definitely you know, massively accelerated you know because of covid and those kind of stuff but we've you know we've got to the point where we now have quite a few nhs trusts you know most of our activity is still in the uk most of that is still is 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 the you know nhs is the public sector we have a number of kind of private clinics and stuff as well but it's mainly you know uk and public and and, and public sector but it's it's scaling out from those so you know whereas two years ago digital consent just wasn't a wasn't a product category and um, yeah no one was no one was kind of thinking about it or or c- even if they were thinking about it couldn't have gone out and, and bought something there just wasn't no, there wasn't, there wasn't any there. And now that you know so we're in a kind of small group of three or f- three or four products who you know are used somewhere we're the kind of you know market leaders in that space but there are others and um so it's you know scaling it's you know f- we've gone from zero to one now it's about you know going from one to hundred, but also understanding how we do that. So how we scale that stuff, how, you know, what are all those, you know, little manual processes that, you know, we haven't had time to get rid of them and they, you know, they increasingly become annoying as you try and scale. So what are the processes that we need to put in place to allow us to go one to hundred instead of, you know, one to two over the next 12 months? Good. Well, look, we're coming up to the end of the show. Um, it's been super interesting. I, 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 I haven't been doing this before, so you're my first person to ask this to, but I want to kind of end the shows going forward around 
what kind of can you can you give us some behaviors or lessons that you've taken from your your journey from clinician onto entrepreneur in a startup it doesn't have to be many you know just one or two key things that that you kind of hold true to or you believe have led you to this place yeah um so uh, not thought about it but uh, so i think one of the things for me is that um you know i don't think and i you know don't think i ever will be the kind of classic you know ceo entrepreneur in in how i you know envisage the kind of you know elon musk you know you know shouting from the rooftops you know crazy extrovert type of thing you know i'm a clinician at heart and i've needed over the last you know six years or so to understand obviously and there's lots of you know steep learning curves in terms of the business stuff and if you think of the kind of spectrum from you know classic clinician to classic businessman you know clearly you know moving a little way along that spectrum but you know being really comfortable and saying actually i'm a clinician at heart you know i there was there was a challenge that i as a clinician and there's you know lots of others of, of us in this kind of you know clinical entrepreneur space by now you know there was a problem that i that i or you know a small group of us wanted to solve and we you know, saw an opportunity to do that and it just happened to be that it was easier you know more likely to be successful to do that you know outside of the system you know on the kind of business bit mm. of the you know spectrum rather than within the trust or you know within within the nhs so it's you know it's, it's just being comfortable with that and saying i don't need to be a you know traditional ceo i can be a clinician who understands some of that business and it's you know somewhere along that spectrum and to be honest clinicians listen to clinicians uh, you know yeah. it, it speaks volumes and it, and it just gives that confidence that you know, you go into a demo and you speak there as a surgeon and they know that, or at least that, you know, it gives them that initial reassurance that what you're going to talk to them is not going to be something that's completely irrelevant to them. Yeah, exactly. It's already been, I think that I completely agree. It's like, you know, be true to yourself, be true to your mission, but also understand that, you know, you, 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 you need to be as authentic as possible, you know, yeah. and if you're authentic as possible, then, you know, people can either take you or leave you, but more yeah. more often than not, they'll take you. Yeah. yeah cool, absolutely. Daph. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Daph Loughran, CEO and founder of Concentric Health. Um, what's the website? Where do people go if they're interested? So just just good concentric.health. Um, if you search for digital consent, we'll be there. All right, good. Daph, thanks for coming on the show. And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back with another great guest next week. Hi. This is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.